Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Before I get started, I want to give a huge shout out to Alexis and Matt Iaconis at Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, they've stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. I can personally vouch for both the quality of wines you'll receive and the integrity of this small local business, which needs your support to survive right now. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. Yesterday, I got in the car for the first time in over two weeks. Our family was finally through our 14-day quarantine. We were all healthy, and we'd finally reached the point where a trip to the grocery store was necessary. So I pulled up my N95 mask, the one I had from the California wildfire season, found some rubber gloves meant for tie-dyeing at my son's canceled birthday party, grabbed a pack of disinfectant wipes, and headed out. But first, I went for a run. One of Oakland's best-kept secrets is that the city is flanked by the hills of the East Bay Park system, over 500 miles of dirt trails that take you through fields, redwood forests, along streams, and offer occasional glimpses of the bay. The nearest trailhead is a five-minute drive from my house. After two weeks inside, I was eager to get out into nature. When I got to the park, there were large signs urging social distancing and explaining exactly what that was. I was glad to see that people seemed to be taking it seriously, giving each other the requisite six feet of distance to keep us all safe. I started my run on one of my favorite trails, one that doesn't see a lot of traffic. But about 10 minutes in, I saw a family hiking up ahead of me, including some older folks. Rather than pass them, I opted to take a trail that split off from the one that I was on. It was a trail that I usually avoided because it's not great for running. It steadily climbs for a good mile or so before you reach the ridge. But on this day, I was happy to take it. And because I'm a bit of a nerd and my writer brain is always searching for metaphors in life, I thought, this is just like life right now. We're having to make different choices, maybe harder ones, but it's good for us. This will make us stronger. Though I don't normally listen to anything when I run, I did yesterday because I've been missing some of my favorite podcasts these past couple of weeks. I used to listen when I was driving, but I don't really drive anymore. And no, the irony does not escape me that I'm listening to fewer podcasts in a time when I'm creating my own. As I charged up the hill, I felt good. I was listening to The Happiness Lab, to Lori Santos's excellent interview about meditation with ABC News correspondent Dan Harris. She opened the episode with these words, My inner monologue has been constantly racing from students and family members I need to check in on, to what's left in my pantry for dinner, to the latest scary statistics, to, oh no, did I just touch my face? My entire brain is like zip, 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 from one stressful thing to another. The continued uncertainty of this awful situation has made it nearly impossible for me to switch my thoughts off. It was a comfort to me to hear these words. Her words captured so perfectly my own experience these past two weeks. But here I was, out on a run, ready to learn from Lori and Dan on how to make it better. I made it most of the way up the hill before I saw another group of hikers. 
The trail was a single track, and so I decided to turn around rather than pass them, and that was fine. Not surprisingly, the downhill was easier. The metaphor continued to spin. Eventually, this pandemic would peak. We would get through this. But I also know from my many years as an athlete and a coach that the downhill is actually harder on your body than the uphill is. The uphill feels harder, but all of that coasting downhill is what tears up your legs. This observation served the purposes of my metaphor well. We would find out as a world that coasting through life can cause real damage, that there's value to doing the uphill work of living differently. And then, just like that, my toe hooked on a tree root and my euphoria and tidally constructed metaphor came crashing down. I landed hard in the dirt. My chest went tight with panic. Tears jumped to my gaze and I stifled a sob. I twisted my ankle hard. I've had many ankle sprains over the years and this one felt bad. I'd intentionally avoided people on both ends of the run and now here I was, out here alone, deep in the woods. I worried that I might not be able to get myself back to the trailhead, which was a good 20-minute run away. Even if I did see someone, it felt irresponsible to ask them to help me, to put an armor on my shoulder and walk me back to my car. I took off my earbuds and sat with the pain. And then I recalled what Dan Harris had just been saying in the moments before I fell. Meditation remaps our brain. Something as simple as following your breath for a few minutes can change your perception of life as you know it. So I closed my eyes and I breathed. Little by little, my focus shifted from my throbbing ankle to my breath. I stood and limped my way forward. I kept breathing. My chest relaxed. My worry faded. And then I looked up. Above me, the treetops towered like a cathedral. The forest was quiet and lovely. I kept breathing, slowly making my way down the hill. Eventually, I reached the bottom, still focusing on each breath, on the beauty around me that, of course, I'd known was there but hadn't fully appreciated before. My ankle still hurt, but I was able to walk without limping. I found myself praying spontaneously in gratitude at first, and then for the people in my life, whose names popped into my head with each breath. I felt a warmth toward each of them, a connectedness that hasn't felt possible during these days of isolation. I kept breathing, kept praying. I felt more grateful to be alive in this world than I had in months. Slowly, gingerly, I began to run. I was experiencing in the space of minutes the journey Dan Harris describes about the past decade of his life. In the Happiness Lab interview I was listening to, Dan tells the story of how he came to meditation. I contacted both Dan and Lori before this episode, and they gave me permission to share with you a bit of their conversation. I hope you'll check out the interview for yourself, too. It's great, especially in these times when good news is so acutely needed. Back in 2004, Dan started having panic attacks after spending a lot of time covering stories in Middle East war zones. But it wasn't until his boss, Peter Jennings, asked Dan to start covering faith and spirituality that things began to change for him. Dan wasn't excited about the assignment. He didn't ascribe to any particular faith or spirituality. Jennings said he needed to do it anyway. It would be good for him. Dan says, It became a great transformative assignment for me. I realized how ignorant I was about issues of faith and spirituality. 
I made a bunch of friends. I spent a lot of time in mosques and megachurches and Mormon temples. It was fascinating. It didn't lead Dan to religion, but it did introduce him to meditation. Still, he was a skeptic. He says, I had a really bad attitude about meditation. I thought it was for people who were really into aromatherapy and listened to Cat Stevens and used the word namaste with no irony. That's not entirely untrue, by the way. What really changed my mind was the science. There's a ton of science that suggests that meditation can literally rewire your brain. The parts of the brain associated with stress, attention regulation. It's been shown to lower your blood pressure, boost your immune system. Once Dan started meditating daily, his panic attacks stopped. He started gaining respect for the practice and discipline of meditation. His experience was so transformative that he wrote a book about it called 10% Happier. Dan admits, it's not going to solve all of your problems. Nothing is going to solve all of your problems. That's why I called the book 10% Happier. But Dan says that his relationship has changed with that little voice in his head, the one we all have that tells us what we should or shouldn't do, that compares us to others, that makes us feel confident or insecure. He says that his inner weather is balmier now, but that doesn't mean he's living in a state of euphoria. He says, I just think meditation makes you more balanced, more resilient, more thoughtful in the face of life's ups and downs. But for as simple as it is to follow your breath, developing the practice of meditation is hard. It took me years to embrace meditation for myself, and I still feel like I'm not that good at it. Like Dan, I was skeptical about it for a long time. But eventually, the science behind it won me over, especially the findings about how good meditation is for anxiety and depression. I notice an improvement in my mental health when I'm meditating regularly. Dan and Lori's conversation and my experience on the trail brought me back to a book I read a long time ago, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. I reached out to Foster before this episode and got permission to share some of his words with you. Foster wrote Celebration of Discipline in 1978, but his words still feel timely today. His chapter on meditation begins with a Thomas Merton quote, True contemplation is not a psychological trick, but a theological grace. Foster comes from the Quaker tradition, so his chapter on meditation is informed by examples of meditation both in the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament stories about Jesus. Though it's not uncommon these days for Western religions to embrace a practice that was pioneered by the Buddha, Foster does make a distinction between the two. He says that Eastern meditation is an attempt to empty the mind. Christian meditation is an attempt to empty the mind in order to fill it. He makes a great case for meditation within Christianity and uses examples from the Bible to back up his argument. I grew up in the church, and my faith has long shaped the way that I experience this world. Almost always, as on the trail yesterday, my experiences of meditation and prayer are intimately connected. Often, one leads to the other. Foster's perspective on why we're so reluctant to meditate and pray intrigues me. He says, Human beings seem to have a perpetual tendency to have somebody else talk to God for them. We are content to have the message secondhand. The history of religion is the story of an almost desperate scramble to have a king, a mediator, a priest, a go-between. 
In this way, we do not need to go to God ourselves. Such an approach saves us from the need to change. For to be in the presence of God is to change. It is very convenient this way because it gives us the advantage of religious respectability without demanding moral transformation. We do not need to observe the American scene very closely to realize that it is captivated by the religion of the mediator. That is why meditation is so threatening to us. It boldly calls us to enter into the living presence of God for ourselves. It tells us that God is speaking in the continuous present and wants to address us. I think Foster's words could be applied not just to religion, but to our world today, especially in the West. We're desperate not just for a leader who is just, eloquent, and who makes decisions from a place of integrity, but for anyone who can say for us the things we're feeling. We scramble toward witty, wise tweets, to Instagram posts that we think will elevate and enlighten us, to blogs and news sources, and yes, even podcasts, that will make us feel more connected and informed. It's not that any of these things are bad in and of themselves. It's that in all of our hurry to declare what's right or wrong in our world, we all too often neglect our own need to stop, to contemplate, to breathe. It keeps us in a state of perpetual disconnection with ourselves. It robs us of the quietness and endurance of real change. As Dan said, Meditation won't fix all of our problems. Nothing will. But it might help us gain a little perspective on our situation. Maybe during a time in our history when there is so much to feel bad about, it can make us 10% happier. Maybe it'll even usher us into the presence of something holy. Before I close today, I want to give one more plug for Imagine Mindfulness and my friend Jerry Cambra's online class on mindfulness-based stress reduction. The next session begins April 1st, and right now they're offering a super discounted rate of only $50. If you're in a time of financial hardship, but you'd like to take this class, contact them and they'll waive the fee completely. The interview I mentioned in today's episode was from the podcast, The Happiness Lab. It's titled Episode 4, Calm Can Be Contagious. The book I quoted is called Celebration of Discipline, written by Richard Foster. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen, share it with a friend, and subscribe. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. As always, you can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.